Welcome back to the episode three of the Independent Intel Podcast. I am your host, Kimberly Bomani, with an array of topics centered around the NBA and NFL, like always, on a weekly basis. And this week, we'll be facing topics that focus on the rebuild or regression of John Gruden's Las Vegas Raiders. Is he doing a good job, or is he only propelling the Raiders to stagnant times? The rapid evolution of Buffalo quarterback Josh Allen, his play recently has been phenomenal, and we want to explain how he got to this point after coming into his own independent draft in 2017 as a rather raw prospect. We have Rudy Gobert's boomer bust contract extension. The Jazz have invested heavily in their top two players, Gobert being the second most important on the team behind Donovan Mitchell, but due to Gobert's skill set and limitations on the floor in terms of being able to be there and play productive minutes for an extended period of time, is he worth the money that they gave him long-term? And which teams in the NBA need to get out to a fast start to open the upcoming season? Basketball is back, people. As a rather shortened offseason in the NBA brings basketball back into our forefront around the holiday season. And tonight, we have the Golden State Warriors and the Brooklyn Nets, followed by the Los Angeles Lakers getting their rings in Staples Center versus the Los Angeles Clippers. So all those topics will be addressed. But before we get to the more recent one, which is focusing on the NBA season that's here, let's get back to the one that's the most prevalent. John Gruden's Las Vegas Raiders are in a unique predicament. Since he's taken over the team after getting a 10-year, $100 million contract to come out of retirement and coach the team, after being in the Monday night football booth for nine years, he's been on the squad since 2018. And they've had records of 4-12, and 7-9, and currently they're at 7-17 after a 6-3 and start. Now, the unit's in a unique position. We have to judge John Gruden's productivity on the squad because he's got the richest contract in the history of the NFL. And when you get a $100 million contract for 10 years, individuals are going to look for gradual improvement and some type of postseason relevancy for people to feel like you deserve the deal, let alone winning a championship. And through Gruden's three years with the squad as a coach, they not they haven't sniffed the playoffs. Now, obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs are in their division. The Kansas City Chiefs are currently Super Bowl reigning champions. It's going to be hard to win a division when you got to compete against those guys. But you can get into the playoffs not being a victor of your division. And for a while, the Raiders were in the wild card playoff hunt. Actually, they were one of the wild card playoff seeds, but terrible losses against the Falcons and the Chargers, as well as a near defeat against the Jets, have kind of put everything into perspective for the Raiders. That while they are building something for the foreseeable future, those still might be a couple years away from being prevalent postseason participants. Now, we have to address how they got to this point. When Gruden did get the job, he, he made a very monumental decision by removing the Raiders' best player at the time, Khalil Mack, by trading him to the Chicago Bears for an assortion of picks. Now, at the time, getting two first-round picks in back-to-back years, sprinkled in with a six and a third, seems cool. Seems like acquiescible, you know, compensation. But with those picks, they've kind of maybe flubbed on about every selection, maybe except one. Now, for starters, we know for certain Josh Jacobs is a stud. He was their 24th pick by the Raiders that they utilized as one of the assortion of picks that they accumulated from the Chicago Bears for the trade that sent Khalil Mack to the Windy City. Now, in Josh Jacobs' rookie season, he rushed the ball 242 times for 1,150 yards and seven touchdowns in only 13 games. Now, he didn't play a full season because he had a 
broken shoulder clavicle that didn't allow him to finish the 2019 season because arguably if he did, he may have won the Rookie of the Year award over Kyler Murray. This year, he's running the ball 245 times for 907 yards and 10 touchdowns in 13 games. But yet again, he's befell to the injury bug, more consistent lower extremity injuries near his legs area. Now, the Raiders, they didn't miss on Josh Jacobs, but the issue is they can possibly miss on Josh Jacobs from a long-term perspective. Because the big question is, will he be on the team after his rookie deal? And we have to ask this question because Josh Jacobs has not been able to stay healthy his first two years in the league. Now, we could have a Dalvin Cook situation where he plays enough games and has enough of a high level of productivity on the offense where he's able to get to his second contract and cash out for it at a high level. But Dalvin Cook ran the Vikings to a playoff berth at one point in his career. Josh Jacobs is not. And a lot of that is because he hasn't been able to stay healthy when it's mattered. And a lot of it is because Josh Jacobs is just one dude. And the Raiders, as a complete roster, aren't there yet from a talent perspective to be true playoff contenders. Now, I'm not going to go in depth with their selection with LaSawn Austin in the sixth round. He's no longer on the team. He's currently with the Jets, and he's got PT with the Jets as being a huge part of their defense that's promoting the tank philosophy as New York tries to get the number one pick. Weren't really successful in that last week because they did lose, did not lose. They won to the, they beat the Rams. And because they beat the Rams, there's a high percent chance that they won't be able to get Trevor Lawrence, which is a good thing for Trevor because he dodged a complete bullet. Now, Damon, Damon, Damon Arnett from the Oakland Raiders from the was a selection by the Las Vegas Raiders from Ohio State University, and, and in the moment that was a very big reach because Damon Arnett wasn't the best corner on the Ohio State Buckeyes. That was Sean Wade, who was an underclassman, and so when the Raiders made that selection at 19th overall, it was one of those situations where okay, we understood you needing a corner, but Arnett wasn't the best corner available. You could have been better off getting Christian Fulton. Uh, but not Arnett. A lot of guys had Arnett as a second or third round grade. Half of that was carried issues, but a lot of half of that was even though he has immense measurables, great size, great speed combination, he was known to get lost in the sauce in the secondary and get beat plenty of times and was labeled as Ohio State's weak link in the secondary. And when you're one of the weaker links in a power five conference as a DB back deep, doesn't usually translate to you being a first day pick. And was not what was I'm stuttering. He was not only a first day pick, he got picked in the top 20, and that gives cause to pause immensely. Now, in the third round, the Raiders used the last of the Chicago Bears picks that they were given to on Brian Edwards. He was picked number 81 overall, and currently he can't crack the field at all. He had a big touchdown catch against the Saints early on in the season, and since then, it's been a struggle for him to get into the rotation amongst the Raiders' immense level of pass catchers. And this is where we are with Vegas. You know, that's their team currently. And I've talked about it. Arnett was a reach. Edwards can't crack the rotation. LaSawn Austin isn't even on the team. As Josh Jacobs is a guy that they hit on, but he can't stay healthy. So with Khalil Mack, you've got one certainty that is injury-prone and currently two unknowns, along with a guy that's no longer on your roster. He's on another team. Now, if you're going to trade a franchise guy for a source in the draft picks, you got to hit home in the draft. And this is a team that, since they lost Mac, haven't replaced his spot. And they continue to struggle rushing the passer. Now, when they, lost, when they let go of Mac, they were the worst pass rushing team in the league in terms of defensive sacks. It was below the number 15. I want to say they 
only accumulated 14 sacks during that time. Aha, it was actually 13 sacks in 2018. 2019, they were ninth worst. They got 32 sacks. But then currently in 2020, they only have 16 in the bottom half of the league. Once again, third least. Now, I remember when they took Cleveland Farrell in the top five in 2019. I remember that. They took Farrell over Brian Burns and Josh Allen, two edge rushers that would have been extremely useful on a team that has went back to running a 4-3, and you need edge rushers within a 4-3 to be productive. At least you need an edge rusher, and if you don't have an edge rusher, you better have a D-tackle that can provide some type of push up the middle to get to the quarterback. They took Farrell. Now, Farrell, I remember, was not highly regarded as the best alignment on the Clemson Tigers. He was probably the third best, maybe the fourth best if you bring in the Austin Bryant conversation. Now, they passed up on Allen and Burns, who currently have more career sacks in their two seasons in the league than Farrell has. Farrell has six, while Allen has 13, and Brian Burns, who has had a Pro Bowl caliber season with the Carolina Panthers, has accumulated 15 and a half sacks in his career, more recently eight for the Panthers. In 2020, they reached for Damon Arnett in a draft where they took three first-round receivers, three of them. Took Arnett over Justin Jefferson, who probably would fit better at the receiver spot within their run-first play-action-pass offense than Henry Ruggs, considering that they don't utilize Henry Ruggs at his best, which is his vertical ability to get down the field because of his 4-3 speed. They don't throw the ball vertically a ton. A lot of this is deep intermediate passes, and considering that Justin Jefferson is lighting it up with the Vikings, running those same assortion of routes, he would have been a more ideal fit at the wide receiver spot than Ruggs, which I'm saying is you didn't have to reach for Ruggs at that spot. You could have took a corner earlier or utilized that spot to address the pass rushing issue, maybe fortify their offensive line. They took three receivers in the first round I I, I might add, they're underutilizing Rose, like I'm saying. He only has 26 catches for 400 yards. Lynn Bowden, who they also took, isn't on the team anymore because he didn't pass his physical. And Brian Edwards is struggling to craft the rotation. Now, it's early. It's really early. Like in all sports, you only judge a draft pick after the rookie contract. But right now, it doesn't bode well. Now, maybe if Oakland gets a new OC, which signs show that they're probably not going to get a new offensive coordinator because John Gruden plays a huge part in their offense. And offensively, from a statistical perspective, they've been inconsistent as of late. But overall, they have a nice balance of being able to run the ball effectively and throw it. Defensively is the issue. They're very green in the secondary, and they struggle to get pass rush because they've whiffed on a lot of pass rushing options in the draft. They took, and let's look at their draft in a nutshell, to be honest. In 2017, this was before Gruden came here, they took Colton, Mill- Colton Miller over Jair Alexander. Now, Cole Mill is not a bad tackle, but for a team that's struggling to find that bona fide corner in the secondary, you had a chance to get arguably the best cornerback in that draft. Looking back, you took a tackle over Jair Alexander. You took P.J. Hall over D.J. Tark when you were looking for a solid X receiver on the outside. And because you missed on being able to get a receiver in past drafts, you got to make up for it by taking a surplus of them in the recent draft. And you're underutilizing the the one that was taken first overall in terms of the first overall receiver off the board. The other one can't crack the rotation. And like I said before, the other guy's not even on your team. Uh, Took Brandon Parker at tackle over Orlando Brown Jr. who went later. And I remember why Orlando Brown Jr. went that late. Didn't have a great showing at the combine, but he was an all-American tackle 
and he is a physical presence and a load on the outside, even with his immense height and weight prototype. Now, 2019, don't want to rain on the Raiders parade completely, was arguably their best draft. They took Josh Jacobs. They had strong safety Jonathan Abram. They got Max Crosby in the fourth round. He's arguably their best pass rusher. He's accumulated 16 sacks in his young career. They took Drake Vaughn Mullen, who's shown immense growth early on in the season, but recently he's been prone to get picked on. Most importantly, remember the Thursday night game against the Chargers where he got four PIs and was completely victimized by the playmaking ability from Justin Herbert. He's allowed 47 catches, 558 yards, and five touchdowns, and quarterbacks have a 96.5 passer rating on him. It's not a good sign. Now, Derek Carr during Gruden's tenure. The quarterback's always important during the coaching regime, and considering that Gruden was coerced, it may seem, because a lot of rumblings are coming out that he never liked Carr, to keep Carr on the roster. Carr's numbers have improved every year. In 2018, when Gruden got here, 19 touchdowns, 10 picks, over 4,000 yards passing, 68% completion. 2019, he took 21 TDs, 8 picks, 70% completions. And he'll arguably end the season in 2020 with this deadline because he went down with a severe groin injury that it doesn't look like he'll come back from to play the last two games. So he'll finish the year with nearly 3,400 yards passing on a 68% completion percentage clip, 24 TDs, and 7 picks. Now look, I'm here to tell you, Derek Carr, it's not a franchise quarterback, but he's a solid starting QB that I feel like has performed pretty well in a more simple-minded passing attack that's came upon this Oakland Raiders team. Now, formerly known as the Oakland Raiders, currently known as Las Vegas. Now, if you look at the Raiders, they're in a tricky predicament. They have flubbed on a lot of recent draft selections, and the guys that they have on their team right now are solid players, but... They are a year away from really, truly reevaluating what John Gruden has done in the first four years of his 10-year deal and truly assessing the fact that they're behind the eight ball. Denver, L.A., and the Kansas City Chiefs have way more talented rosters than the Raiders. Chargers have a quarterback that's going to put them in contention real soon. They just need to make a you know, decision at the head coaching helm, which basically means get rid of Anthony Lynn and just put anybody in there they can help these guys close games when it matters in the fourth quarter. A lot of their losses are one-score possession games that come down to the fourth quarter, whether it's a missed kick, drop ball here or there. Charters could have easily swept the Raiders if their tight end would have completed a full concentration of the catch the first time they met in L.A. Now, that's the Raiders. The Broncos have all the pieces on offense. Noah Fent is an athletic freak of nature that has the intangibles to be a very productive tight end in the NFL. They have a surplus of running backs. Melvin Gordon and Lindsey complement themselves very well in the backfield. They have the weapons. Cortland Sutton, when he comes back fully healthy, is a solid piece. Jerry Judy, solid piece. KJ Handler, solid piece. The only issue on the Denver Broncos offense is the quarterback. Drew Locke isn't that guy. And when Drew Locke came out of Missouri, I looked at his tape, and I was like, this dude is Blaine Gabbert. Ironically enough, Blaine Gabbert used to play for Missouri. And what I mean by that is amidst arm talent, Velocity is there. The arm strength is there. The accuracy isn't. The decision-making isn't. Now, a lot of people compare Drew Locke to the likes of Josh Allen in terms of like, well, look at, they kind of are similar. Josh Allen was ingrained his first start, yada, yada, yada. But here's the thing, though. Josh Allen was ingrained his first start because, yeah, he was very raw in terms of his intangibles and whatnot as a quarterback. We're going to get into Josh Allen's rise play-wise very soon. But 
Josh Allen in his rookie year didn't have the weapons that Drew Locke has right now. So Denver is a quarterback away from being better than the Raiders. So where does that leave the Raiders? You have a quarterback that may have plateaued as a talent. When you simplify the offense around Derek Carr, he's a solid NFL QB. Nothing spectacular, solid. John Gruden doesn't like him. He wants a QB under center that has some semblance of wheels and dual threat ability. And Carr has serviceable wheels, but he isn't the dual threat that Gruden probably is looking. And he wants a big, strong arm QB as well. So they don't like their guy in Carr. The skill positions out wide. Waller has been a revelation at tight end. Two solid years with the team. Wide receiver-wise, Nelson Aguilar's had a career revelation. Hunter Renfro has been a solid piece that they've added on their team, but they don't have a bona fide top dog at receiver. And defensively, they have one solid underrated pass rusher. They don't get enough push up the middle. They don't give enough push on the edge. Their linebackers are okay. Corey Littleton, the cream of the crop that he selected in the free agency, hasn't been able to stay on the field consistently. Don't know what he brings to the table. And back deep in the secondary, Trayvon Mullins has been high and low so far in the first two years of his career. Jonathan Abram is a nice piece, but he is a speeding bullet that hits anything that he sees with reckless abandon, which usually means more times than not, he won't be in the lineup consistently due to injury. Now, he's been very productive this season in terms of racking up a whole bunch of statistics that matter on the defensive side. If you look at him from a statistical standpoint, in the name of Jonathan Abrams, he is a guy that has accumulated an array of impactful plays that matter. He's got two picks. He's got a forced fumble or a fumble recovery. Mind. He's been around the ball way more often than he was a year prior, mainly because a year prior, he only played one game. Can he stay healthy? So their two best draft selections since Gruden has got here have been Josh Jacobs, Jonathan Abrams, and they can't stay healthy. And, now, that's not – he's ultimately not the sole benefactor of these draft decisions. Mike Mayock, who used to be a huge draft insightful Google when he was on NFL Network, he plays a part as well. They flubbed. They flubbed really bad. And a lot of these holes that they have at respective positions on the roster, corner, receiver, pass rusher, they had opportunities to take these guys in the heat of the moment, and they didn't, and they're going to pay for it. So my assessment with the Raiders, are they progressing? Are they regressing? Are they staying stagnant under the tutelage of John Gruden? The win-loss column is going to show gradual growth, but looking at it from a roster standpoint and seeing them play for an array of times this season, they're going to be a real stagnant team, and it's going to showcase itself next season because I expect the Chargers and the Broncos to get better because I expect Denver to resolve the quarterback situation, and I expect the Chargers to get a new coach and to be relatively healthy next season because Duran James hasn't played in two years. Keenan Allen's in and out of the lineup. Their running back situation isn't the most sound, mainly because Austin Eckler's been unhealthy. So they get a new coach and they stay healthy. The Chargers are better than the Raiders. Denver solves their quarterback situation. Denver is better than Las Vegas, which literally leaves John Gruden on the outside looking in. So it's going to be real interesting to see how the Raiders resolve this situation. And if Vegas doesn't make the playoffs next season, He's on the hot seat. Now, Gruden's going to be okay either way. He's going to get paid. He's going to get that $100 million contract paid in full somehow. The buyout's going to be immense. But for Vegas fans, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow because 
this is a team that should be a lot better off than where they are right now. The development of Josh Allen. Now, Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills are achieving heights of success that I predicted to possibly happen heading into the year. Allen is a unique talent. He's a guy, when he was drafted in 2017, he was a raw prospect. Out of all the quarterbacks that they propped up, he was the guy that they propped up the least, even under Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, because everybody recognized the arm strength that he had, but he played for Wyoming. He played below average in a Mountain West conference that isn't known as the elite conferences of the college football spectrum. He was missing a lot of throws. When you see him, a lot of routine throws, but he'll make a couple wild ones. But we all understood immense arm strength, limited accuracy with the arm strength. So he was a raw prospect that needed to be propped up, needed to be built. So everybody thought he had the biggest bust label on him because while he has the physical measurables and physique to be a pristine quarterback at the next level, the accuracy and decision-making were like, uh, didn't really believe it. Since then, he's lived up to it. And you can arguably make the case that his trajectory could be to represent that draft class as the best quarterback available. Now, Josh Allen, last Saturday versus the Denver Broncos on Saturday night football, went 28 of 40, 359 yards, two touchdowns, while rushing for three times for 33 yards and two rushing touchdowns. So he had four total tubs against a Denver Broncos team that passed on the opportunity to take him over Bradley Chubb. Now, hindsight, I'm not going to fault the Denver Broncos. Josh Allen was not high on their radar. Now, he was high to go number one with the Browns. It was either Donald Allen or Baker Mayfield. Now, the Browns took Baker. It's paying off as well because they're in the playoffs, and Baker's been playing relatively well under Kevin Stefanski. But Josh Allen has made the gradual progression that everybody recognizes, and his biggest issue coming into the season was his accuracy. Could he be a more accurate passer since he showed growth from his rookie at second year? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Now, it's helped that Buffalo, over time, has developed an offensive line and weaponry around him, and those two things we will address as we go on about this topic throughout the podcast. But let's talk about these career completion percentages that he's improved over time. Now, this season... He's completed 68.7% of his passes. He's thrown for exactly 4,000 yards, 30 touchdowns, and only nine picks. Now, his rookie year, where he was basically him, LaShawn McCoy, and maybe his best receiver was Kelvin Benjamin, he threw for 2,074 yards, 10 touchdowns, and 12 picks, while only completing 52% of his passes. Raw prospect. Buffalo was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Sign Cole Beasley, sign John Brown in free agency, fortify that offensive line as well by getting Cody Ford in the draft, drafting Devin Singletary, getting Dawson Knox as a tight end. Oh, by the way, I said, uh, this was in 2019. So this was after Josh Allen's rookie season. What did that do for Josh Allen? It did extreme, extreme, extreme wonders for his play. Second season completed 58.8% of his passes, threw for 3,089 yards, 20 touchdowns, nine interceptions. Now, his coming out party was on Thanksgiving against the Dallas Cowboys, where the Bills as a team looked legit, and Josh Allen outplayed Dak Prescott. And that's where guys finally realized, hmm, this Josh Allen cat that we remember during the draft as being a raw prospect a few years away, looks like he's forming himself into being an NFL quarterback. And in the playoffs against the Texans, he had a moment late in the game where he was kind of acting out of sorts in terms of trying to make the big play too much that he was almost causing his team 
several times, like throwing the ball backwards and stuff while he was running. It was it was some weird stuff. But that season convinced me that, you know what, Buffalo as a team is a team to look out for next year. I called them in the offseason, the dark horse. And I felt like the only thing that they needed to help propel them to not just be AFC East champions, but legit contenders in the AFC, Josh Allen has to take the next step as an accurate passer. Decision-making improved last year. So the only thing that he had to put together was become more accurate. And we're going to talk about that in depth. So coming out of Wyoming, Allen had a rocket arm with no consistent precision or accuracy. In his rookie year, he'd make a wild throw under heavy duress to a blanketed receiver downfield. Case in point, when they played the Jacksonville Jaguars his first year, Jags pass was just bearing down on him, and he threw a rope to Ruben. I don't want to say Ruben Foster. Was it? Was that his name? I'm not sure, but a rocket dot to him and great coverage, touchdown. Hit him on the numbers. He was able to run in stride, easy dubs. But he would also have moments in time where he'd miss a routine receiver wide open on a drag, hit him in the dirt. So early in his career, he would make that rocket throw under heavy duress, then run it right back and throw a knuckleball to a wide open receiver over the middle. A lot of it was due to his wayward mechanics early in his career. That started from the feet up, which drastically dictated the trajectory of his passes. The reshaping of that and the Bills not missing free agency and recent draft selections to help build up their skill position in the offensive line did them wonders. And it did so. Now, Allen's mechanics were unique. And it's something that I'm going to go in depth with because it was something that I recognized and was able to point out off of a YouTube video that I saw by the well-renowned Brett Coleman. A lot of you guys may know him where he breaks down film and mechanical tendencies of players in terms of describing how they play at a high level or how they play at a very low level. And according to Coleman, Allen became what he referred to as a rotational passer. Past Allen used to drag his back foot behind his hip, which would yank the chain of his release at the start of his throw. He then added a front foot hop, opening his toe and back knee up to help accurately follow through on his throw. His feet and hips ended up being square to the target because of this, which resulted in a higher completion percentage. That is big because, according to Coleman in the film that I saw, Allen used to drag his back foot a lot the first two years in the league. And by doing that, he wasn't able to fully directionally proportionate where he wanted to throw the football, which in essence limited the trajectory where the ball was supposed to go. So he could see the receiver's open right side, and he would try to will it with his arm. But with pure arm strength, with no true direction of where you want the ball to go, the ball will go anywhere. So he'd miss a receiver wide right, hit him on the ground, hit him to the left, or he'd throw a pick all together. Now adding that front hop, which allows him to hop into a directional stance that allows him to follow through with his release, his problems have more or less been solved. He's become a way more completed passer to where he was running skeleton drills against the Broncos, where in his rookie year, he'd be missing the likes of a Stephon Diggs wide open. And when Stephon Diggs got traded to the Buffalo Bills, a lot of people thought his career was over. They thought, oh my goodness, going to Buffalo. Buffalo, like, no one's going to win there. Josh Allen, he's got a huge arm, but he's the antithesis of Patrick Mahomes. Huge arm, no control. Like, there's no way you're going to be able to grow your career to a high level of success to where you could be the productive receiver that you want to be. Josh Allen's going to give you all these passing opportunities where the ball soars over your head, and you're never able to accumulate the amount of receptions that you truly want to. And you know what Stephon Diggs was able to do to prove all those doubters wrong? Lead the league in catches with 111 for over 1,300 yards, 
And he's not the only one. Cole Beasley is closing in on the 1,000 yards right now at just 79 catches. Rookie Gabriel Davis has 30 catches for 469 yards and six touchdowns, making up for the fact that John Brown, the free agent signing that they obtained last year, has been in and out of the lineup. So look, Buffalo was able to accumulate all of these weapons that play case to Allen's vertical passing strengths. It's actually been able to improve. Well, inevitably, all those things are great. It helps to have a stuff on it. It helps to draft a Gabriel Davis, who I love coming out of UCF. It helps to get a center image more. Get a left guard in John Feliciano. Draft Cody Ford. It helps to build up the offensive line gradually through the draft. It helps to get these records of skill position players in either free agency or get a young guy in the draft just in case somebody slips up in the rotation and gets hurt. But inevitably, like the Drew Locke situation in Denver is proving, the quarterback has to take the records steps as an individual talent to improve as a decision maker and a passer to elevate the resources around him to their fullest potential. Josh has done that. And I got to give Denables, their offensive coordinator, and Allen a round of applause because it's not easy. It's not easy, especially during, <clears throat> excuse me, especially during the likes of the pandemic where training camp was non existent. Everybody had to zoom it. So you have to articulate to Josh Allen, listen, this is what I see on tape. This is what I see on film. I need you to do this. Now, granted, Josh Allen still probably was able to, with a mask and everything, go out and about, get a quarterback coach. Those guys were able to work on his footwork and whatnot. But the fact that he did it, wanted to get better, is great. Because the biggest knock I have on a guy that a lot of people compare Josh Allen to coming out, it's not Ben Roethlisberger. It's not Phillip Rivers. It was Cam Newton. Cam Newton, like Josh Allen, had all the God-given talent. Woke up in the morning, he could throw a ball 60 yards. Great arm strength, great physical tools, an empowering, a powering, physical, imposing runner that was able to drop back and launch it 50 yards down the field. Now, granted, Cam Newton has done some things since he's come to Auburn that I give him credit for. He's become a better pass progressor. What I mean by that is reading his, going through his progressions, going to read one, two, and three, and being able to get the ball out effectively because early on in his career, he was one read go. And over time, he was able to develop into a multi-dimensional pass progressor. And usually that requires you to be able to go to your first read, your second read, the check down before going to your last resort, which is your ability to utilize your legs. But Cam Newton never improved as a passer. He always relied on his arm strength and his passing mechanics coming into the league stayed the same. He's basically the same passer he was at Auburn, but he's regressed immensely now because he never worked on the accuracy so with his arm strength gone due to shoulder surgery his weaknesses show so we don't get to see that powerful cannon that we start in the early prime of his career we see cam newton at times struggle just to get the ball from point a to point b because he never had that pinpoint accuracy developed over time to where when his arm strength slowly declines when it's from age or injury he still had the pinpoint accuracy to at least survive like a Ben Roethlisberger, who's struggling, by the way. But Roethlisberger has shown throughout the season that he can hit the short and intermediate routes effectively, consistently on an accurate level. Cam Newton hasn't. A lot of that's because the shoulder surgery. A lot of that is because of old age. But the main thing is he never worked on his accuracy. And I've heard guys say, you know, if you're a strong on quarterback, you can never tame the accuracy blues. If you come in inaccurate, you're going to usually end your career inaccurate. But inaccuracy is all about footwork. 
if your footwork's not great when it comes to throwing a football, you're not going to be able to get it to the direction that you want it to go to. And you got to station your stance to the direction of where you want to throw the football. You can't just say, hmm, I want to throw it right. And they just throw off platform and they get there accurately. Or you can if your name is Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. But those guys have the innate ability that possess that. Mahomes, because he's grew up playing baseball due to the fact that his dad used to be a baseball player. And Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he's Aaron Rodgers. Josh Allen was a fastball, full steam ahead passer like Cam Newton. He had no direction. He had no touch. All those things have improved drastically, and it's put the Bills in a very new, unique position as the dark horses in the AFC. Now, Josh Allen, great. Where do I expect the Bills to go? Now, look, I had the Bills going 11-5 and to win the division. They're going to surpass 11-5. They might end the season 13-3, and which will put themselves in position to be the two-seed in the AFC. Now, in old playoff terms, that'd be enough to get a bye. Now, it won't. But what it will be enough is to stave off facing the Chiefs until the championship game, and you allow yourself to get three straight, not three straight, but two straight games in Buffalo. And right now, Buffalo will be predicted to play maybe the Dolphins, I feel. I think the Dolphins, they match up pretty well with the Dolphins, mainly because divisional rivals, they know each other. But Allen's able to go against that very suffocating Dolphins defense in the secondary and play pretty well because he's been able to show an ability to throw cats open. And Stephon Diggs has showcased that no cornerback can truly hold him down in the NFL. So Bills are in a good spot. I feel like they're going to make the playoffs, of course. They're going to win a couple games, and I feel they're going to be the team, not the Titans, not the Steelers, not the Browns. They're going to be the team that's going to face Kansas City in the championship game. Are they going to beat Kansas City? I don't think so. I do feel like their Bills defense has started to come around kind of the way we all predicted them to be coming into the season. But Kansas City has shown the ability to run the football effectively, and you can run on Buffalo. Pittsburgh wasn't able to run on Buffalo. Pittsburgh hasn't been able to run on anybody all year. But if you stick with the ground game, you can run on the Bills. Now, granted, the health of Clyde Evers-Wheeler is huge for Kansas City. Is he going to be back, and is he going to be 100%? If he's not, that means you got to lean on Le'Veon Bell and Daryl Williams. Now, Le'Veon Bell is a solid back, but he isn't what he used to be during the Pittsburgh days. And if you're doing a tandem with Daryl Williams, you may reap some positive benefits, but you also may reap some negative rewards. So we'll see how that goes. But Bills are in a unique spot. I like what they're building. I trust that they're going to be able to be a productive team. And we'll see and we'll see what will happen for this franchise as they move forward. But the progression of Josh Allen showcases that Buffalo has the quarterback of their future. I'll darn say it. They have a franchise quarterback. And from there, the sky is the limit. On to NBA topics, Rudy Gobert is a rich man. And this week, Rudy Gobert was able to get a contract extension, five years, $205 million from the Utah Jazz. Now, when the reports came out saying he didn't want to sign an extension less than a Supermax, I was like, understandably so, because if a player is eligible for it, because he fits requirements and requirements that he had to fit was win defensive player of the year twice, they go chase the bag, young man, and he is chasing it. I just felt like the Utah Jazz were not going to acquiesce to that because Rudy Gobert, albeit is very important to Utah defensively, is not a supermax player. But they paid him. And at first I was like, why pay Rudy Gobert? You could trade Rudy Gobert when his stock is somewhat high to a team like Brooklyn, to a team like Chicago, to a team where he could fit productively. Brooklyn, ideally. 
and you could probably get Lavert, Dimwitty, those guys. Probably not Lavert and Dimwitty for Gobert, but you can get Jared Allen and Karis Lavert, or Jared Allen and Spencer Dimwitty. You can get consular pieces that in the West have the athleticism and versatility to defend those versatile front court players as well as the likes of small ball that are very prominent in the West Coastal Conference. However, the Jazz said, no, we're going to keep Rudy, who last year averaged 15, 13, and two blocks. Not bad, but it's not numbers from the likes of Hakeem and Shaq back in the day. And he is a two-time defensive player of the year. The most points he's averaged for a season is 15.9. He did that in 2018 and 2019, which is the year he won his second consecutive defensive player of the year award. Now, as I've stated before, the Jazz, what they've done is they've locked up Gobert, who's 27, and Donovan Mitchell, who's 23, for the next five years, fully immersing themselves into the competition known as the grueling Western Conference. Now, while this seems like a death sentence for a middle-of-the-pack playoff team like the Utah Jazz, this is nothing new for this small market but perennial postseason participant. Now, since moving from Utah, since not moving from, but moving to Utah from New Orleans when they used to be called the New Orleans Jazz in 1980, the franchise has been to 29 playoffs in 40 years. That means they have a playoff rate in terms of participating 73%. That's the playoff rate. In the 21st century, they've made the playoffs more times than they've missed. They've made it 12 times in comparison to the eight times that they did miss. And the last time they didn't make the playoffs was in 2015-2016. They were a record of 40-42 and 42 and with a ninth seed in the West. Now, Utah. I do remember a time where Utah was not good. Barely, though. Maybe two years. I remember one time in particular... They were in the lottery and they picked Dante Exum. And then after that, like in the lottery, I'm speaking like top 10-ish. After that, they were kind of in the lottery to pick Donovan Mitchell. Well, no, they weren't in the lottery to pick Donovan Mitchell. Denver picked Donovan Mitchell and then traded Donovan Mitchell to Utah. So Dante Exum was really the time that I can recollect where they were picking the lottery and they picked the player. Utah is a team that's used to being a playoff contender. And they are a team opposite of other teams in the West opposite of an Oklahoma City that's reluctant to tank because they're not a franchise that's used to tanking. They feel like if they have the requisite pieces to compete for the playoffs as much as possible, they'll do so. When they trade, well, when they didn't trade, they went all out to keep Gordon Hayward. When Gordon Hayward didn't stay, they made the move to take Donovan Mitchell. Now, hindsight, no one really knew what Donovan Mitchell could do. Once we saw him ball out at a high level his rookie year, we were like, aha, this is what the Jazz saw a dynamic offensive player that could replace Harris production somehow, some way that could keep them afloat in the West. And it worked. Now, here's the issue with giving Gobert this massive deal. He's an archaic, he's an archaic big man that's prone to be exposed against front court contemporaries. He's an effective but non-athletic rim protector that struggles to guard in space. And at times is unplayable during the playoffs versus certain teams because of the effective small, small ball and other contemporary bigs that have enough versatile offensive skill sets to give him a problem on the defensive end. I feel personally as if the Jags' biggest priority should have been to cater towards their younger star, Donovan Mitchell, who has a higher upside and trade Gobert on the open market to where you could get consolary parts at a more reduced rate that coincide with Mitchell as well as allowing the Jazz to compete with the flow of the competitive West. Those are my takes. 
Did the Jazz do that? They did not. Why didn't the Jazz do it? Like I said before, this is a team that's used to being a playoff contender. I don't have a problem with the team being a playoff contender. I invite teams utilizing an opportunity to win as many games as possible to get to the playoffs, try to hard tell, because let's be real, in sports, only one team can win a championship. And then when we look at it from a grand scheme of things, about maybe four or five teams, especially in the NBA, are legit title contenders. Everybody else just wants to get in where they can fit in in the postseason. And if they're not a playoff team, they just want to get it where they can fit in from an economical standpoint in terms of fans showing up to see an entertaining star or just see their team play hard or just see their team exist because it gives a great morale and an emotional boost for the community that they represent. I just feel like with Utah, I feel bad for Donovan Mitchell. I think Utah is doing it all wrong. They should be catering towards Mitchell because he's younger, with a higher ceiling as a player, with an offensive upside that could be maximized with complementary pieces that surround him. Now, I said they could trade Rudy Gobert as if Rudy Gobert is a wanted man on the trade market. He's not. He's not going to get the attention that James Harden's getting currently. But he's a guy that can get you enough attention to where you can get consulary parts to fit him. But the bottom line is Utah is a small market. No one's going to go to Utah unless you're a role player that's getting paid over their salary weight to be a part of their bench or be a six-man filler in the second unit like Jordan Clarkson was. But Jordan Clarkson was obtained after the trade, but like Jordan Clarkson was, though. And so that's Utah, man. That's Utah. You only go to Utah if you're a role player that's getting paid top dollar that you shouldn't be getting paid or a role player that's just trying to get back into the league and showcase to everybody, I can still play. Utah can only make it happen through the draft. And they made it happen through the draft. They took a took a gander at Rudy Gobert. And the gander became a great, great hit. They took an investment on Donovan Mitchell when they lost Gordon Hayward. That's a hit. I just feel like you don't have to keep two because the two together are a dynastic duo. There was even a point in time where Mitchell and Gobert, this was before the COVID riffraff that the, that the two went across with each other. Gobert will be saying some sideways stuff to Mitchell. Like he doesn't pass the ball enough and Gobert has made it known that he wants to get more touches. And my problem with that is you're not offensively skilled enough for you to get more touches outside of a dump down low on a drive by a guard or picking up the offensive leftovers off the glass for putbacks. Don't have a jump shot. Don't space the floor. Don't have a post game or an offensive threat despite the fact that you're over seven feet tall. That's just facts. That's just facts, Rudy. I understand where you're coming from, but you just ain't there yet offensively. And so with that being known, I get what Gobert brings from a defensive ability perspective. He's going to get two blocks a game every year. Like that's what he's going to bring to the table. But if you look at it from a finite principle in the West, you got a guard, AD, Jokic, Carlsny Towns, Aiton, and Porzingis. He can probably guard Aiton. But he can't call those other guys. All those other guys present an ability to pick and pop, which takes Gobert away from the basket. They all present an ability to put the ball on the floor and go by Gobert. Now, Gobert, let's go back in the series against the Nuggets this year. Gobert neutralized Jokic pretty well. But a lot of that, as time went on, as Jokic started to exert his, you know, talent by just being aggressive, is Jokic's ability at times to check out in terms of aggression. So he won't be as aggressive as he should be. He'll be passive-aggressive. That'll limit Denver's ability to be productive as an offense because that offense runs through Jokic. And so it made it seem like, dang, Gobert really putting on the clamps. But as soon as it became winning time when Denver Denver got down 3-1 and Jokic started exerting his will, 
Gobert got exposed. He got exposed against AD. Like that's just Gobert is just a he's he's a fish out of water. He's a guy that's in over his head. He's a guy that's playing at the wrong time. If he would have played early on in this century, Gobert would be that dude. And this wouldn't be an economical compensation that the Jazz make that I balk at. But I balk at it because it's like, all right, in about two years, this is going to be a bad deal. Because two years from now, the Jazz will make the playoffs. But two years from now, the Jazz will lose. Because one of the main reasons why they'll lose is they'll be like, you can't play Rudy Gobert on the floor. And when you take your biggest center off the floor at seven feet, you'll lose a rim protector. Favors now is your five. Favors is a little bit undersized in terms of what Gobert brings to the table. And he's not the rim protector that Gobert is. So you don't have the defensive deterrence anymore. And Mitch is scoring all these points. He's making games entertaining. You may win a couple games in a series, but you miss out on what you can do because Gobert exists and he doesn't fulfill the window that you wanted him to fulfill. And it's just a tough situation that they're in. And that's where the Jazz are right now. So don't blame him for making a deal. Don't think it'll work out. It's going to be a bust type of contract and everybody knows it. Last but not least, we're going to talk about teams in the NBA that need to get off to a fast start as we begin the upcoming season. Now, the season's here. We know. Big games tonight. But I'm going to talk about some teams that not all of them play tonight. You're going to have some that are going to play tomorrow. And the first team I'm going to address are the Boston Celtics. We're going to do two teams from the East and two teams from the West. Boston's got to get off to this fast start. And two reasons why. They didn't address their center position. They're still rather undersized there, which means even though the Eastern Conference doesn't have an array of bigs like the West does that can school people down low, they have an array of wings that could be able to maul the individuals that are underneath the basket that present themselves as Boston Celtics centers. They didn't saw that center position. Tristan Thompson, their prosperity agent, won't play for a month. So that basically means the likes of Daniel Tice and Robert Williams are going to be your big men. That's not f- bad because they were your bigs uh, the year prior. However, the issue is you didn't fix it. <laughs> you bring back the same team from a year ago. And to make matters worse, Kimball Walker won't be playing for a month because he's on the shelf due to injury. So Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have to carry the offensive load with the help of maybe one of their young guys coming off the bench pitching in as maybe a third option scoring-wise, because you know what Marcus Smart's going to bring to the table from a glue guy perspective. That's what you're going to need. And it's unfortunate for Boston, but they're going to need to get off to a good start because of that. But they have two of the most grueling two-game openings probably in the league. They're going to play the Bucks and the Nets, two teams that a lot of people feel are going to be the Eastern Conference Finals participants to decide who comes out the East to go to the NBA Finals. I don't think they're going to win those two games. Because Boston has shown in the preseason, albeit they play the Nets a little bit. They're not who they are defensively, like what they used to represent. And offensively, without Kimball Walker in the lineup, they just lack that scoring firepower. Because as much of a step that Jalen Brown took, Jalen Brown is erratic as a scorer. And on the offensive side, I love Jason Tatum. I love him a lot. He has bouts of inefficiencies as well. So they're still relatively young, trying to figure out what they are as offensive talents. But when push comes to shove, I don't think as a team they're going to get off to that start that they need to, but they need to, which is why I put them on there at the most important team. Second, Philadelphia 76ers. Now, they're in a good spot. Their first six games, two of their first six games against teams that made the playoffs, and those two playoff teams are in the East, and both of them 
are we taking a step back? I don't know if Orlando has taken a step back. I think Orlando stayed the same, which isn't good because it's not like their same last year was great. They were the eighth seed. Toronto's taking a step back. They lost Serge Ibaka and Marcus Gasol. They replaced them with Aaron Baines and Alex Lynn, who are serviceable rotational bigs, but they're not starting caliber. Um, still got Kyle Lowry, still got Siakam, still got, I don't know, we still got those dudes, but you can arguably make the case that Philadelphia, when healthy, they're better than Toronto. Ben Simmons, Embiid, Tobias Harris, they're a problem. They play him late in the year, too. So Philadelphia can kind of develop continuity and a rapport against Mincemeat, Washington, Hornets, you know, those guys. Those are the type of teams that they're going to be playing early on in the season, and they have a chance to get off to a 6-0 and start which would be huge in terms of morale and a confidence boots for their young core that they want to make work in Simmons and Embiid, as well as how they operate under the coaching tutelage of Doc Rivers. It's a make or break year for this team. It's influential that around the all-star break, they're a top three seed. If they're not a top three seed, then there's a problem, which means that it's official Embiid and Simmons, who I still don't think can coexist with one another, mainly because your point guard can't, can't, especially at that size, not hit a jump shot. Means that they can't coexist with one another. You got to blow it up. If they can, it means Doc Rivers is doing his job right. And doing his job right means utilizing the strength of his players instead of putting them in a position where the weaknesses are magnified. So I expect Philly to get off to a pretty good start. They're going to need to get off to a pretty good start to be productive. That's Philly for you. Now, in the Western Conference, I have the LA Clippers. That are Los Angeles Clippers. We all remember them from last year. They were a team that got Kawhi Leonard, got Paul George a free agency, added him to that Clippers squad of grimy grimers, and automatically thought, wow, they're a favorite to come out the West. They didn't even get to the Western Conference Finals. As a matter of fact, they blew a three-one lead to the different Nuggets. So that team, that nucleus of a team, for the most part, returns with a different coach. And kind of a different type of perspective. Now, Montrezl Harold's no longer there, but that's about really it. I mean, they they replaced what did replace Harold with Serge Ibaka. They got Luke Kennard in the trade. Lou Williams is still there, but I expect Lou Williams to eventually be shopped as the season goes on. They didn't fix the point guard hole that they have, but they still have Kawhi Leonard and they still have Paul George. And what it ultimately will come down to, because I don't trust Ty Lue as a coach. I know a lot of people in the league respect him, but I just look at him as not an X's and O's guy, but a voice of reason. And I don't think his voice of reason will be that powerful. So it's going to be up to the leaders, the best players on the team, Kawhi and Paul George, to play and to play often and to play well, because that'll help team morale and I'll help team continuity. And that's the most important thing for the Clippers. They got to get off to a fast start. Not just to stay out of the standings, because I'm not saying they have to get off to a good start from a standings perspective. They just have to get off to a good start to make guys realize early on, hey, our best players are playing. Hey, we're playing with our best players. Hey, our best players are playing well. And hey, our best players are playing well with the productive compensation and continuity of the consulary parts. Those are things that the Clippers didn't have last year. Last year, it was... Kawhi would miss games, Paul would miss games, Paul would play a game without Kawhi, oh, Paul plays well. Kawhi would play a game without Paul, oh, Kawhi plays well. Paul would play a game without Kawhi, oh, Paul just kind of didn't play well, Kawhi would play a game without Paul, and Kawhi was off. They kind of played together, when they played together, everybody played together. They played well, lost one game. 
Then that was rare, like not 20 games plus they played together. Then when they had to play together for an extended period of time in the series, that continuity isn't there. And everybody's talking about the Clippers in terms of, yo, the Clippers, they don't have a team leader. That's a big problem. They need somebody in there that can hold guys accountable. All that sounds nice. But the most important thing in basketball, in my opinion, that supersedes the leadership is continuity, especially when you play 72 games and your postseason consists of a seven-series playoff, not a one-game ordeal. You need guys that develop a feel and a sense of belonging and a sense of connectivity on one string and on one accord. So when you get into the playoffs, you know people's tendencies, you know people's feels, you know where people like to be, you know the go-to thing to do, the go-to play, the go-to routine, all of that. That can only be established in the regular season. If it's not established in the regular season, you're kind of going into the playoffs off of, I'm talented, he's talented, let's make it happen. It can't. So that's going to be up to Kawhi and Paul. They're going to have to stay healthy. And then when they are relatively healthy, they're going to have to play. And when they play, they're going to have to play pretty well. They're going to have a test. Lakers. Opening night. Even if they beat, look, they beat the Lakers last year in opening night. Whether they beat the Lakers or not to start the season, it doesn't matter. We need to see about all-star break. Kawhi and PG have at least played. More than half of the all more more than half of the games pre All Star break. If they do that, and the Clippers are relatively in the top three seeds in the West, they're showing progress. They're showing true progression. That's a team they truly put our faith in to look out for coming out of the West. And those are facts. Last but not least, we have the Phoenix Suns. On the Phoenix Suns, are a team that are probably going to make the playoffs this year. I'm just being real. Now, let's look at the playoff standings last season. The Lakers made it. Denver made it. Oklahoma City, Houston, that's four. Utah, um, Dallas, Portland, and uh, who was the eighth team? Can't think off the top of my head. Or maybe that was eight. But yeah, eight teams that made the playoffs last year. Eight teams. And so we know Houston and Oklahoma City are probably not going to make the playoffs. I'm saying Houston might not make it because if James Harden isn't on the team, throughout the season they're not a playoff team they're not so they're not going to make it so they're going to have two free spots available and so if you take into account that everybody else that made the plus is probably going to make it again so phoenix could take one of those two spots main reason why chris paul is here now chris paul had an abnormal season with oklahoma city not because he played not just because he played well because a lot of people were questioning did chris paul kind of fall off because that last playoff series he was in with the Rockets, when he was playing against the Golden State Warriors, he couldn't guard Steph Curry at all. I mean, who can, honestly, if you're in your prime? But offensively, it was a struggle to get to the basket. And he knew he couldn't get to the basket consistently enough. So when he was going to the rack, he was just going there to try to get fouled. It was tough to watch. And in Oklahoma City, he was there. Wow. Played relatively well. Was healthy. But that's the big thing. Chris was healthy. Throughout his career, Chris doesn't stay healthy. And so for this to work, Chris Paul needs to be a healthy, productive aging veteran for the Suns. If he's in and out of the lineup, not 100%, then Phoenix is not a playoff team without Chris Paul. Because I love Devin Booker. I love Devin Booker. I love Devin Booker. Now, wasn't a huge fan, but I like him. 
He's shown that he can score the basketball at a high obtain rate, and that translates into winning basketball. Deontay Aiden, uh, DeAndre Aiden, say DeAndre Aiden. DeAndre Aiden showcased that if he was a part of the team early on in the season, that they probably would have made the playoffs. But they're going to need him, Chris Paul, to be healthy because they've kind of set the team up to where Chris placates the offensive productivity of Booker and Aiden. And if he's not there, they don't have a consulary guard behind Paul to survive. Like, who would take Paul's spot if he's not there as the PG? Are we talking, you know, Ty Jerome? Like, what are we saying here? They need Paul to be healthy to help this offense take the next step. That being said, the Suns do need to get off to a fast start because even though there will be two free more spots in the West, there's no guarantee in the West. Minnesota is could be coming. That's a talented team. Sacramento, San Antonio, on the surface, they look like, eh, but they could get going just off of the schedule and how those things pan out and everything. So it's important for the Phoenix Suns to get off to a right foot. They're going to have to do that with Paul staying healthy. That schedule's not mincemeat either. A good way to get off on the right foot, beat a playoff team from a year ago. How to do that? Going to have a great opportunity to do so. Play Dallas beat the Mavericks. Don't think Porzingis is going to play because he's still recovering from that torn meniscus. Beat Dallas led by Luka. Get going off the right foot and then keep stacking on wins. Keep getting statement wins to showcase to everybody. We're for real. Not only to showcase your fan base, but build morale in the locker room within the players. And then from there, Phoenix can make the playoffs. That's my take on that. So, final two minutes to go with this podcast. Uh, just addressing the state of the room. Now I'm excited for this basketball season. We got an array of teams that are going to present an array of basketball to the viewer and the ability to showcase high levels of productivity and some supreme lowlights. Now we know teams like Oklahoma City, the Knicks, they're the Cavs, they're, they're not going to be good, the Kings, but we are interested to see what is Brooklyn going to look like, you know, if they decide to not get hard and keep the team that they have. We know what KD and Kyrie are going to bring to the table as offensive scores. Who's going to be that third option? Are they going to be a defensive team? How are they going to run their offensive sets with Steve Nash as your coach and D'Antoni as your assistant? Are you going to be seven seconds or less? Are you going to be up and down? Are you going to play with tempo? Who's going to be the defensive stopper for them on defense? And then out West, Lakers, they're going to micromanage the health of AD and LeBron because they're both improved for this team repeating. If they're able to do so at a productive rate, Come playoff time, are they going to be able to turn it on? Because the Lakers are going to be a team that's probably going to turn it off a lot in the regular season, unless they're playing a team that they they want to get up for. Uh, that's a big thing. And then most importantly, look at the likes of the Phoenix Suns, the Timberwolves, teams that have built this surplus of young talent to make a playoff push. If they don't make the playoff push that their franchise at least wants them to attempt to make, where do they go from there? Do they blow it up? Do they reconvene? Do they intervene? What's the situation there? That's a wrap for the podcast for today. Episode three was a pretty good success. Like the flow of it all. Like my ability to get two topics, address them in a timely manner, go in depth with it, whatnot. Episode four will be here next week. Seeing in the works if a guest can come. Maybe our first guest will arrive. If not, the other rare topics by yours truly so low in it 
podcasting it as always. You can find us on YouTube, Apple Pods, Spotify, under the name Independent Intel. It was a great day to talk to you guys, to be a part of the sports scene. Other than that, peace out. Have a great day.